Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I mean, I'm running out of ways to say, is this vote really happening today? The lead starts right now. House Democrats say they really want to vote on Biden's agenda this time. I mean, really. But progressives rejecting the latest plan will bring you all the action. It could be another tool against COVID-19, Pfizer says. Its new pill is 89% effective against hospitalization and death for those who are infected. Plus, an emotional day in court. Ahmaud Arbery's mother sobs as new video of her son's shooting was played in the courtroom. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news in our politics lead and theoretically a great day for Joe Biden's presidency. But it could nonetheless end up being remembered primarily for continued Democratic dysfunction on Capitol Hill, even with votes theoretically pending any moment now on the House floor. Today, the U.S. Labor Department delivered Biden a strong jobs report. The U.S. economy outpaced estimates and added more than 531,000 jobs in October, plus revised August and September reports also show many more jobs added than had previously been believed. In addition, the Federal Reserve is now signaling it might jump in and help slow inflation prices. There's even more good news today in the fight against COVID with a new oral medication that is highly effective, Pfizer says, in keeping those infected out of the hospital and out of the morgue. But right now on Capitol Hill, Democrats continue their long streak of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory with no agreement as of now on a way forward on Biden's legislative agenda, even though Speaker Pelosi began this process of getting to a vote this morning. Let's start this hour off with CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House. Caitlin, President Biden spoke briefly this morning touting the economy. He said he'd be back later to speak when the two bills in the House of Representatives pass. It sure did sound like his money, at least this morning, was on these bills clearing the House today. Well, it was, but maybe the White House saw what was coming because they did later clarify after the president spoke that he did not necessarily mean he would speak later today, Jake. And so, of course, they're waiting to see once both of these bills get passed and if that's actually still going to happen today because White House officials woke up this morning very much of the mind that this vote was going to happen this afternoon. They worked late into the night and the president has essentially been on the phone all day yesterday and today with a lot of these Democrats, including some of these moderate holdouts who say they want to see this score of the final financial impact of this bill before they vote yes on it. But this morning, the president came out very uh, enthusiastic about these jobs numbers, of course. It is very good news for a White House that desperately needs some good news. But also during those remarks, Jake, he used those jobs numbers to urge Democrats to vote and to vote right now. I'm asking every House member, member of the House of Representatives, to vote yes on both these bills right now. Send the infrastructure bill to my desk. Send the Build Back Better bill to the Senate. 
So, of course, there, Jake, he says right now. That is something that you have not heard from the president before. Instead, saying when Speaker Pelosi brings these bills to the floor for a vote, vote yes on him. Today, he is saying that that needs to happen in the immediate future. Of course, a part of that is spurred by the election night losses that happened on Tuesday night. But also, the White House really wants to see action on this and believes now is the time to do so. And, of course, we are seeing progressives now threatening to blow up the latest plan by Democrats to vote on at least infrastructure as soon as today and send it to the president's desk. And just to give you a sense of how much the White House is waiting and watching to see what's happening on Capitol Hill, President Biden is initially scheduled to leave the White House today to go to Rehoboth Beach for the weekend. They have not set a departure date for that yet, Jake, as we wait to see if he even goes at all. Yeah, I'm not sure that now's the time for ice cream. Caitlin Collins at the White House, thank you so much. Let's go to CNN's Jessica Dean now on Capitol Hill. Jessica, key leaders were in and out of Speaker Pelosi's office all day, seemingly trying to shore up a final deal. Does a vote tonight still appear likely with Pelosi and the Progressive Caucus now locking horns. Right. It's really hard to see a path forward. So here's where it stands right now, Jake. Democratic leadership has come out with their plan. What they would like to do is to do a vote on the infrastructure bill and then a vote on what's called the rule for the Build Back Better Act. That's essentially a procedural vote to move forward on it. Well, the problem with that is progressives have long said uh, we're not voting on the infrastructure bill before we vote on Build Back Better. They are connected. And it is no surprise that progressives are now pushing back on that saying they will not support this infrastructure bill if they are not voting on Build Back Better. So what's holding up Build Back Better where there's a handful of moderates that want a score from the CBO on how much this would cost. There are other scores that they have been given from the White House and other uh, sources, but they want the CBO score. That does not just come out of the air. That takes several days. It takes a while to get that. So progressives are now saying, fine. We'll just wait until you get your CBO score and then we'll vote on these together. So the question now, Jake, is how does House Speaker Nancy Pelosi proceed? We are expecting to hear from her uh, this afternoon on how they move forward, because as I said, they have announced uh, this is their path forward, that they intend to vote for infrastructure and then this rule. But if they don't have the votes, then what do they do? And that is the key question right now, Jake. Jessica Dean on Capitol Hill. Thanks. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Ro Khan of California. He is one of nine deputy whips on the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thanks so much for being here, Congressman. So Speaker Pelosi just announced that she had adopted a proposal from the Congressional Black Caucus, and the proposal looks like this. Uh, There will be a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill and a vote on the rule to allow a vote later on the Build Back Better Act. Then in the intervening time, seven to ten days perhaps, the Congressional Budget Office would finish analyzing the Build Back Better Act That could take seven to ten days, as I said. Then there would be a vote on the Build Back Better Act with the expectation that the moderates will vote for it if the CBO analysis matches what the White House analysis is. Why is that not good enough for you and the Progressive Caucus? Well, Jake, first of all, what we want is to have the vote on both bills. That's what the president wanted. He wanted the vote on both bills today. And those votes, I believe, would pass. I mean, I think six people would not when push comes to shove, actually vote no on the House floor. So I still believe they should put those for vote. Now, in terms of the compromise, I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, particularly Whip Clyburn, and he says it could be forward progress. We're open to having that conversation. But the question is, if we have that conversation, we vote on the rule, how do we know that we actually have the caucus's commitment to vote for Build Back Better two weeks from now? Uh, It would take convincing the progressive caucus of that case. But I'm open, at least, to the conversation of how we get forward progress. So 
Do you understand how this might all look to an independent voter who maybe swings back and forth during election seasons and voted for the Democratic Congress right now, but maybe voted Republican in the last election? They might look at this and say, Democrats cannot govern. Well, I'm from the governing uh, philosophy, and I'd say to them, what we're trying to do is help the working class. We're trying to get universal preschool. We're trying to get tax cuts for the working class. We're trying to get uh, child care to be affordable, and we will come together. We're very, very close. There's six folks who still are, have some concerns. I think it will be overcome. I'm open to uh, Whip Clyburn's uh, suggestion. Uh, obviously, we're negotiating in real time. I have no doubt we're going to get this done, and what people will remember is when we deliver. So Speaker Pelosi wrote a letter saying this is what they, she intends to do. She intends to put the bipartisan infrastructure bill out on the floor, and then there will be a vote on the rule for the Build Back Better Act, and, and, and everything will play out, as, as I said earlier. Um, you are telling me, though, you are suggesting, and Congresswoman Jayapal, the, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is suggesting that if she does that, you know, at 45, 50, maybe even more members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus will vote against the infrastructure bill, right? If she brings it, it, it without Build Back Better being voted on at the same time, will you vote no on infrastructure? I'm open to having that conversation. I think the chair would be open to having the conversation. But our recommendation is have the vote on both bills. That's what the president wanted. If there's an alternative path, let's have that conversation. You can't just say let's announce the vote and let's see if we can come to a consensus uh, on how we move forward. But I hear people that we have to get something done. And I want to be very clear that progressives aren't standing in the way of getting something done. There were six folks who were standing in the way of that. And we're open to having a conversation with leadership about how how to go forward. Well, look, I don't speak for the Congressional uh, Problem Solvers Caucus or the moderates, but my understanding is there was a study came, that came out from the University of Pennsylvania uh, Business School, Wharton, right? And that study suggested that the White House analysis of Build Back Better uh, wasn't quite accurate. And so members like Josh Gottheimer and other members of, the, of the, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party said, all right, well, can we get the CBO to score this? Which is a pretty basic thing to have happen when it comes to legislation, much less legislation this big. Can you understand why they would want that? No, I can't, because the Joint Committee of Taxation has scored it. The actual deficit is the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That adds to the deficit. This actually raises revenue. And frankly, the economists working for the president are much better than many of the economists at the CBO. I mean, it's not, not like the CBO's analysis is that impressive. They missed some major things of the minimum wage. So I don't really get it. Uh, it's pretty simple, Jake. Do you believe we should help the working class and tax the very rich? If you're for that, then you should be for Build Back Better. If you're for Trump's vision that we should have tax cuts for the very wealthy and shaft the working class again, then don't vote for it. But don't hide behind CBO and this bureaucracy. That's not truthful. Take a position. Are you for the working class or are you not for the working class? So, but just to be clear here, because I'm not the one that announced this deal, Speaker Pelosi is, if she goes forward with the plan right now, you will vote against it and the Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus 
will sink the infrastructure bill. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying she just announced that this is one intention. I'm going to talk to her. I haven't had a chance to talk to her yet. I haven't had a chance to talk to Whip Clyburn, who I have tremendous respect. If they believe that this actually will guarantee both passing, I'm open to listening. And I think many progressives would be opening, open to listening. Uh, but I believe that the best way is actually to put both bills on the floor, because push comes to shove. I don't think you can be a Democrat and vote against the president uh, and vote against the working class. And I think those six folks may say something publicly, but when they have to cast that vote, I think they will be a yes. And that's my recommendation. But look, I have tremendous respect for the speaker, for Whip Clyburn. If they think there's forward progress, I'm at least open to giving them a hearing. But just to be clear, uh, what the moderates are saying, these six members that you're talking about, is, and, and just so people out there understand, the, the, the narrow and the, the, the chasm between Democrats and Republicans is so narrow in the House, they can't afford to lose what? More than three or something like that, right? So six Democrats voting no would sink it. But just so I understand, um, you are, you're saying that they're not honest, that they're hiding behind I'm this. Not, I'm not questioning their honesty. I'm just saying that they may be saying one thing publicly threatening one thing, but vote, they, when it comes down to voting, they may uh, vote for the president. I believe they, they likely will do that. That happens all the time. I'm not questioning their integrity. I'm just saying, how are they going to actually vote when the vote is called? But the six members, if they say to you, Roe, brother, I will vote for the Build Back Better Act as long as the CBO analysis is, resembles what the White House says it is, you don't have to worry. Will that be good enough for you? But what does resemble mean? I mean, I don't think this thing is about the CBO. Tremendous economists have looked at this. Nobel laureates, Paul Krugman, Stiglitz, Jared Bernstein. Uh, Everyone knows that the bill is paid for. This is a values question. Here's the basic issue. Do you believe we ought to tax the rich, have corporations pay more taxes to help the working class with childcare, to help the working class with universal preschool, uh, to help uh, have climate investments? Now, if you say no, I don't think those are worthwhile investments, vote no. If you think they are worthwhile investments and we should increase taxes on the rich, vote yes. But don't hide behind bureaucracy, CBO. Everyone watching this knows that that's Washington speak. Let's be real here. Where do you stand? I have no problem raising taxes on the very rich to help the working class. Where do they stand? Just answer the simple question and vote your conscience. I hear what you're saying, but when I ask you if, where do you stand, if Pelosi brings this to the floor, you won't answer that question. Well, I, I haven't had a conversation on the procedural vote, but I am for the bipartisan bill, and I'm for the, uh, the, the uh, Build Back Better bill. I've said I'm going to be a yes on both. Now, whether we should build, bring both together today uh, or whether we should do a rule, and if we do a rule, uh, what does that mean? And it's not just my vote. It's what, what others will do. You know, even if, I, if the speaker convinces me that, okay, this is going to make progress, does that mean that she's going to convince others. But I have always been a view that we have to deliver for this president. We have to come together. Uh, people are sick of the bickering, and I'm for anything that makes progress. Democratic Congressman Rokana, thank you for coming on in the thick of it. We appreciate it. Appreciate We're going to continue to follow this story. We're awaiting Speaker Pelosi. She is, she's expected to speak on the next steps on Biden's agenda. Plus, Pfizer promoting what it says is a highly effective pill against COVID once people are infected. And there is new hope that the pandemic could soon be behind us. Plus, Key figure in Trump's effort to pull off a coup faces the Capitol riot committee. Did he give him anything? Stay with us. Topping our health lead today, drug maker Pfizer is touting its new experimental pill to fight coronavirus. Pfizer says its trials show the pill reduces the risk of hospitalization and death by 89% for people already 
at high risk of severe COVID. We should note this data has not yet been peer-reviewed or published, but Pfizer says it is moving forward to submission to the FDA. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now live. Elizabeth, what jumps out at you from this new data? Really, Jake, what jumps out at me is that they stopped the trial early. An independent board of experts monitoring the trial noticed that people taking the drug were doing so much better than people in the study who were given a placebo that they said, hey, guys, we need to stop this. It's called stopping for benefit. And we need to give Pfizer the chance to apply now or soon to the FDA for emergency use authorization. So let's take a look at the data that made this monitoring board say, hey, this is looking so good. Let's let's stop this trial now. So there were about 775 patients in this trial. And Jake, these folks had very early COVID. They were within three days of, of, the first, of having the first symptoms of COVID. And the folks who received a placebo, which is a pill that does nothing, 27 of them ended up in the hospital over time and seven of them died from COVID. Those who received the pill, though, only three of them ended up in the hospital and none of them end up dying. And I think that that, you know, obviously speaks volumes. Obviously, experts from the FDA and the CDC really need to pour over this data. And another number that stands out to me is that 774 people in the trial. That's a relatively small number. And antivirals can have side effects. I think there's going to be some discussion among experts. Gee, it was such a small number. Might there be side effects that we didn't see in this small group? What, what do we want to do about that? Should this be limited, for example, only to people at high risk for severe COVID? That's what they did in the trial. If we put this out on the market, should it only be for people at high risk for severe COVID, maybe if someone's not at high risk, if they're going to get COVID and probably do just fine, maybe they don't need to be taking a pill that might possibly have side effects. Elizabeth, when could this drug potentially be available for folks that are infected? You know, it's interesting because um, Dr. Borla, who is the CEO of, um, of Pfizer, told our colleague Jake John Berman this morning, he said, we're going to apply to the FDA for emergency use authorization as soon as possible. It could be, he said, by Thanksgiving even, which is just three weeks away. And if that happens, then really we would expect to have the FDA look at it within sort of a month or so, and then the CDC would look at it. So it really could just be a matter of weeks before this goes on the market. And remember, Merck has an antiviral with some similar results, and they've actually already applied to the FDA. They already have an FDA advisors meeting set up for review on November 30th. So that one, if it comes out, would likely come out first. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Joining us to discuss Dr. Jennifer Connell. She's a family physician and associate professor at Rowan University. Dr. Connell, this new experimental pill sounds very promising. The company's findings so significant, they stopped the trial early. What does that tell you? It, it tells us that it looked really good. Honestly, I'm so excited about this. I'm excited about this one as well as Merck's. As a family doctor, the concept of having an antiviral to treat uh, conditions is not unusual. We have antivirals for hepatitis, for HIV, for other conditions, even the flu. So to have an antiviral for COVID actually is very exciting. It would really open up the landscape for how we're able to treat patients, treat, treat them more efficiently um, and save more lives. This is very exciting. And yes, according to Elizabeth's report and what we're seeing, um, this pill is looking very effective. I want to play a soundbite from Dr. Carlos Del Rio with the Emory University School of Medicine with a great reminder on CNN this morning. At the end of the day, the best thing you can do is get vaccinated and prevent, avoid getting infected and more importantly, avoid getting very sick and dying if you get infected with a vaccine. The pills are there, are available, are a good thing to have. 
But at the end of the day, prevention is much better than cure for any disease. Definitely true, but that shouldn't stop us from being excited about this treatment, right? Absolutely not. And I I know he would agree with that as well. I mean, we need everything and anything that we can use against this virus. He's exactly right. Uh, The vaccine is our best bet uh, to to beating this pandemic. Everyone who's eligible should be vaccinated. However, when we think about where these pills will fall right now in terms of treatment, all I have as a physician is I've got monoclonal antibodies for people who meet certain criteria who are outpatients. Um, and that has to be given IV. It's expensive. Um, you know, it's, it's an expensive drug and it's got to be gone through an infusion center. Then there's remdesivir, but that's only for hospitalized patients. You know, to have a pill as an option to help treat patients that reduces hospitalization, reduces deaths, et cetera, might even be able to be used as prophylaxis. For me and, and I think to a lot of my colleagues, this is a game changer. Turning to the rollout of vaccines for young children, 5 to 11, parents can now search vaccines.gov for nearby locations to find places where they can get shots for their kids, 5 to 11 or 12 to 18. What should parents do if all the appointments are booked up nearby? Yeah. So, well, you know, first of all, um, this is also exciting news that we have a vaccine for kids and so many kids and parents and doctors like myself, we have been waiting for this day and the response has been tremendous. So trying to get that vaccine is the right thing to do. Um, I would say as a family physician to be persistent, um, to check with different sites multiple times. And sometimes if you go to your local pharmacy or you talk to your family doctor, they, they can tell you about the cancellation schedule. They might advise you to come at the end of the day when some shots might be left over if they weren't already given. There are ways to get vaccines sooner. I would not give up. Remember, you know, we know that COVID is less uh, likely to affect kids seriously, but it does. They still have the risk of serious progression, hospitalization. We've lost over 700 kids to COVID uh, since the pandemic began. This is tremendously important that they get vaccinated. So parents, be persistent. How are family doctors like yourself handling the influx of vaccines and the influx of families wanting it? Yeah. So I tell you, it's been a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle, at least for my practice. I'm an associate professor at Rowan University. I'm at a university practice. So it's been a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle. But um, with that said, we're really, really excited. We are giving the boosters for adults. We're giving the primary vaccine series. We will soon start rolling out uh, vaccines for kids. We're sort of doing it in a staggered approach. But pediatricians' offices are already giving them. Of course, you can get them at, at pharmacy uh, pharmacies as well. And what I would suggest to parents as well is check online. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes my first yeah. in- instinct is to tell people to call, but you know, don't clog up the phone lines because yeah. a lot of people have questions. Dr. Try jumping online to find out. Exactly. Dr. Cottle, thanks so much. Let's go to the House of Representatives where Today Speaker Nancy Pelosi is speaking. Uh, to proceed down a path to advance a very historic and transformative agenda. The president's agenda to build back better and also to pass a bipartisan infrastructure framework, create good paying jobs across the country, building the infrastructure of our country uh, with mass transit to help clean the air, with safer bridges for safety uh, for the American people, for broadband to help people communicate better, whether it's distance learning, telemedicine, or commerce, or just family relations. There's many other ele- there are many other elements in the legislation that are very important, uh, very important to the success of our economy. But in order to build back better, we want to do that and pass the, the Build Back Better bill. I call it Build Back Better for Women because it makes a big difference and being transformative for women in the workplace. 
We had hoped to be able to bring both bills to the floor today. Uh, some members want more uh, clarification or validation of numbers that have been put forth, that it, it's top line, that it is fully paid for, and uh, we honor that request. So today, uh, we hope to pass the BIF and also the rule on Build Back Better uh, with the idea that uh, before Thanksgiving, it should take another week or so to get the numbers that they're requesting uh, as, as, I don't know, as that's how long it takes. Uh, and, and as we do, then we will have a Thanksgiving gift uh, for the American people. I do want to thank the, the Black Congressional Black Caucus uh, for the uh, creative uh, alternative that they presented today that advances the agenda to, does, to do so in a way uh, that, um, again, is historic and transformative. With that, I'll yield to the distinguished Democratic majority leader, well, the majority leader of the, of the House, Mr. Hoyer. Thank you very much, Madam Speaker, and thank you, Jim Clyburn, for the hard work that you and your WIP organization, but you in particular, have put forward in terms of getting the work done. What is the work? The work is two bills. They are the President's vision of a better and stronger America, a more competitive America, an America that reaches out to its working men and women, its families, uh, to, uh, to its children to educate them, uh, to seniors to care, uh, make sure that they're cared for properly. These two bills uh, will make, as the President says, a generational change for our country. I believe that uh, the votes uh, today uh, to pass uh, the uh, bill, uh, infrastructure uh, bill and to provide for a path forward by adopting the rule for the passage of the Build Back Better legislation uh, will be a giant step forward. And I am absolutely convinced beyond a doubt uh, that uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, the week of the 15th, we will pass the Build Back Better legislation. All members of our caucus have indicated they're for BIF. Almost every member has indicated, and I believe we will have an overwhelming Democratic vote and pass, on our side of the aisle, the Build Back Better legislation. I'd now like to yield uh, to my friend Jim Clyburn, uh, who has been so uh, important in moving this bill forward. Jim? Uh, thank you, Lee, and the Speaker, for uh, uh, their uh, vision, uh, getting us to where we are today. I think that what we are about to do uh, is hopefully pass a piece of legislation that will be very transformative to many of our communities. If you look at uh, this bill, the so-called infrastructure bill, uh, we see funding that gets us to about 70% of the way with a 100% bill out of broadband in our country. That, to me, is very, very important. You are not going to be able to have the kind of medical care that we need unless we have telehealth and telemedicine. You're not going to have the adequate education for our children unless there's online learning uh, that has to take place. And rural businesses are not going to be able uh, to thrive unless they're going to have just-in-time delivery of their services and their products. So broadband alone does a big, big deal for me. 
But if you look at the communities that I represent, rural communities, uh, many of them rural, these communities with this bill get the water and sewage kind of development that's needed to make these communities attractive for future growth and development. This bill gets us a long ways uh, down that road, and not to mention what it does uh, for uh, our ports. The Charleston port uh, is in my district. Uh, our ports, when you see a state like South Carolina building, and now we do more tires in South Carolina than they do uh, in Ohio. And we've got Mercedes-Benz, their Sprinter is made in North Charleston. Volvo and these plants, uh, uh, BMW, they've got to have the ability uh, to get these products out. So this bill, this infrastructure bill, is huge for my state and the communities that I represent. And then that gets us to the rule on Build Back Better. And in Build Back Better, the reason we've got to have that bill is because that's where so much of what we need for families to get to where they need to be, for their communities to get to where they need to be. Just take, for instance, children. In that bill is where we make permanent for another year uh, the tax credits uh, for children, tax reduction, I call it, for families with children. These things are very, very important, not to mention uh, the other parts uh, of uh, the family uh, that are taking care of that bill. Uh, and so when I think of what we've got to do for uh, the cost of pharmaceuticals, I have to use, I try to use the word pharmaceuticals uh, rather than <laughs> the drugs. The cost of pharmaceuticals, the cost there, it's in Build Back Better. And so I think that there's strong support, if not unanimous support in our caucus for Build Back Better. And so today for us to do the infrastructure bill, give the president this bill to sign so that he can keep the job growth that we just heard about this morning moving forward, that's a huge deal for us. And then uh, we'll go on to do the rule so we can go home and await these final numbers coming from wherever they've got to come from uh, and do what we need to do uh, to pass that bill uh, sometimes uh, out into the future. And I'll let the speaker tell us when that'll be. Well, let me just say how important uh, it is to have a rule vote. Once we have the rule vote, we have the path to the floor. And the, all, all of our members voting for the rule uh, says that we will pass, as Mr. Hoyer said, we'll pass the bill and as the distinguished whip said as well. So there's the rule vote, people have to understand, this is the threshold. And so we'll, we'll cross the threshold that'll take us to that. Republican votes to pass the bipartisan plan? Well, we hope to have as many Democrats as possible to pass the bipartisan plan. Speaker Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, what's the Let me see. Yes, ma'am. Yes, a couple of questions on that. Congressman Jayapal came out with a statement indicating that they will not, she will not support the, her caucus, the Progressive Caucus, the infrastructure bill if it goes without Build Back Better, that she would rather wait until the CBO score comes and that moderates are on board both. Have you spoken to her? And do you have the votes right now for the infrastructure bill? 
we, uh, have, we all speak to each other quite regularly. In fact, it's not a chance to say I spoke once or twice. It's a constant conversation among all of us in our caucus. And the, uh, the fact is we believe it is necessary to pass the BIF so that these jobs can come online as soon as possible. Uh, we have uh, waited a while. We had hoped to pass it sooner, but we can't wait too much later for the legislation. I do believe that there are a large number of members of the Progressive Caucus who will vote for the bill. That is my understanding. I whip the uh, members all the time. I have my own. Now, Mr. Clyburn has the official whip uh, count. Uh, I have the Speaker's secret whip count. I don't tell anything that people tell me, not even you, my dear good friends, uh, but I have a pretty good feel. We'll see, won't Speaker we? Pelosi, yes, sir. The inability. Let's see. Anybody Speaker, else here? Yes, yes Speaker, Speaker Pelosi, you're yeah. in the inability. Okay. Uh, Please. Okay. The, you know, we've seen this. There's going to be a vote. Okay, there's not going to be a vote. There's going to be a vote. There's not going to be a vote. At a certain point, do you worry that it starts to look like the Democrats can't get out of their own way? No, welcome to my world. Uh, this is the Democratic Party. It is, well, Roger said it very well, wherever he is. Right there. Right. <laughs> and it is a party whose vitality and diversity is something that we all respect and admire. We are not a lockstep party. We are not uh, just a speak as one person and nobody else needs to show up. And that exuberance is the vitality of our party, which we value and treasure and respect the different opinions within our party. Uh, if uh, it, the, One of the challenges that we have, though, because I've been here a long time, as have all three of us, the, uh, in those days all of this would be done, but not on 24-7 uh, uh, platforms uh, where their opinions going out, characterizations going out before anybody even knew what was going on. So it's, a, it's a, an additional challenge, but I see every challenge as an opportunity. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma what is your message to progressives who say they will not vote for this infrastructure bill? So, obviously, a little technical difficulty there, but you got the message. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democratic leaders are updating reporters. Uh, oh, let's listen in. The, we've got the technical problem fixed. In our vote, each and every one of us. And I hope that it would weigh heavily uh, on them that American people want to see progress in their communities with job creation. But not only that, what those jobs will create in terms of mass transit to protect the air, uh, water projects to protect the water that their children drink, broadband so that we can have fairness in how people learn, learn and uh, buy and sell and get health care online. The list goes on and on, and, and it's very important that we pass it. So I, think, I hope that they would make a judgment on the merits of the legislation. Democrats to pass this today. What does this show to the American what people? Inability. What inability? The inability to pass the Build Back Better plan. Today. Well, that's a, it, it's not. We're moving the Build Back Better along. This is the first major step. We have never, let me, with all due respect to your characterization, this is as, we're in the best place ever today to be able to go forward. We have not had this level of progress in terms of where we are in Build Back, uh, the BIF, bipartisan infrastructure 
framework. It was called the Jobs Creation Legislation and the opportunity to have a path to, um, to um, build, back, build back better for women. And for women, because there's so much in there that are liber is liberating for women, women in the workplace, and dads too, who have home responsibilities, whether it's child care, whether it's elder care and home health care, whether it's uh, children learning, parents earning, with, with uh, the, again, the child tax credit that helps pay the bills what, in so many ways. And of course, we're very proud of the fact that in this legislation, we have the opportunity for people in the 12 states that did not embrace the affordable, uh, the Medicaid provisions of the Affordable Care Act to be taken under the Affordable Care Act. This is transformational. And everything I mentioned, everything I mentioned is supported by Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema. Everything in the, that I just mentioned. There's some things that they may add, subtract, or whatever, but 99, over 90 percent of the bill was built House, Senate, White House. So if there are a couple things at the end that are different, we'll deal with those. But this is, again, transform, transformative, historic, and Again, this is a giant, two giant steps forward today. But some voters are saying that the government, the Democrats are unable to get it. No, 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 no. Well, watch the vote when it comes up, okay? But the voters, but some voters think on Tuesday that the Democrats aren't able to get anything done. That was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leaders Jim Clyburn and Steny Hoyer updating reporters amid a rather contentious and seemingly endless negotiation over the president's legislative agenda, Pelosi has said that a vote will indeed happen on the infrastructure bill, as well as the start of a procedural step on the Build Back Better Act. That is not what progressives wanted. This is what moderates requested. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Dean on Capitol Hill. So, the day started. Let's just bring everybody up to speed. Right. We thought that there was going to be a vote, a vote both in the bipartisan infrastructure package, which the moderates want, mm -hmm. and the Build Back Better Act, which has uh, a number of initiatives for social uh, spending, such as child care and the like, as well as uh, climate change options, Build Back Better, which the progressives want. We thought there was going to be both. Mm -hmm. Then the moderates said, no, 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 six moderates to be precise. We want the Congressional Budget Office to analyze the Build Back Better Act, and then we'll vote for it. So the Congressional Black Caucus came up with a compromise, and the compromise was, take it from there. And the compromise was what leadership is going forward with, Jake, and that is that they are planning a vote on the infrastructure bill tonight, and that then they are going to do this procedural vote on Build Back Better. And essentially what House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House leadership are doing are staring down progressives who have said for a long time now, since this all started, that they see these bills as intrinsically tied together and they want to vote on them at the same time because they do not trust, and this is what this is, it's a lack of trust between these different parts of the party. They do not trust that they have any leverage, that this will get done the way they want it to, uh, that they feel like holding their vote on the infrastructure bill gives them some leverage, some control over this. So what House Speaker Pelosi and Democratic leadership is now doing is looking at progressives and saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to see if you're bluffing or not. We're going to hold this vote, and we're going to see if progressives will tank 
a major part of President Biden's agenda. Now, what's important is that in progressive Jake progressives has said uh, they they support the infrastructure bill. They just want it voted on at the same time. So here we are and we're going to find out. Uh, the Progressive Caucus just had a meeting not too long ago. It dispersed. No one really talked to the cameras. There were reporters there. Uh, they did not speak to anyone. Um, so it remains to be seen if they do have the votes. Nancy Pelosi didn't answer that directly, Jake. She said she had a good feel about it, but we're going to find out. Speaker Pelosi and her office always say they will not introduce legislation on the floor that they want to pass unless they have the votes. I don't know that that's the case right now. Yeah. Do you? Right. I don't either. And I don't know that anybody up here on our side does. She seems to think she has a good feel for it, Jake. But we're going to find out. You're right. That's generally her take on this. We're just going to have to let this play out. All right, Jessica Dean, thank you so much. Also developing on Capitol Hill today. Today, the House January 6th committee called in a former Trump Justice Department official who turned out to be a key figure in Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. Jeffrey Clark is his name. He not only pushed election fraud theories that were completely untrue, a Senate Judiciary Committee report by Democrats says that Clark was part of Trump's attempt to use the Justice Department's power to unconstitutionally force states to trash already certified election results. As CNN's Ryan Nobles now reports, Clark today refused to answer any questions. For weeks, the January 6th Select Committee has been trying to talk to this man. Good morning. I'm Jeff Clark. I'm the head of the Civil Division. Jeffrey Clark, a former Trump-era Department of Justice official, was seen in this exclusive video Friday morning entering a House office building to answer questions from the committee. The meeting did not last long. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson said Clark did not answer any questions. My understanding is he did not cooperate. Mm-hmm. And we'll look forward after our meeting this afternoon uh, as to the next steps. Uh, I have as chair the ability to rule on some of the issues that were raised. One of those steps could be a criminal contempt referral of Congress. Clark is a key figure in the January 6th probe. A Trump loyalist who peddled false claims about election fraud within the department with the goal of getting the agency to investigate the claims. Clark had a lot to do with this plan for January 6th, and he also um, was apparently making a play to become the attorney general. Clark's efforts were rebuffed by the two men running the DOJ at the time, acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen and his deputy Richard Donahue. Both men have already sat before the committee for lengthy interviews. Clark's current attorney is Harry McDougal, a Georgia-based lawyer with connections to Sidney Powell. Powell and former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani were part of the public push by Trump allies to spread the big lie and sow doubt in the 2020 election results. New video obtained by CNN shows Powell and Giuliani testifying under oath in a deposition as part of a lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems in August. At one point, Giuliani concedes that he often had no proof to back up his wild claims about the election. It's not my job in a fast-moving case to go out and investigate every piece of evidence that's given to me. Otherwise, you're never going to write a story. You never come to a conclusion. 
And the January 6th Select Committee has a lot of decisions to make, Jake, and they are huddled right now behind closed doors, hashing out many of these issues, including the next steps that they should take as it relates to Jeffrey Clark. As you heard the chairman say, there is the possibility that criminal contempt could be on the table for Clark, but they're also moving forward and trying to bring in information from other witnesses. Uh, Thompson has said that as many as 20 subpoenas could go out to people that they need information from as soon as next week. Jake. All right. Lots going on on the Hill today. Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Join me tonight for a CNN special report, months in the making, trumping democracy and American coup. Key Republican officials share never before heard details about just how close the United States came to losing democracy, as well as what Trump is planning for 2024. It all begins at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight, only on CNN. The prosecution and defense both laying out their cases today in the murder trial for the killing of Ahmad Arbery, including new video and a moment that caused Arbery's mother to gasp. Stay with us. International lead, an extremely emotional first day in the trial of three white men charged with killing a black jogger in Georgia. Ahmad Arbery's mother sobbed as new portions of the video of her son's death were played in court today. Prosecutors describing how one defendant told Arbery, quote, Stop or I will blow your effing head off, unquote. CNN's Martin Savage breaks down all of the key arguments from today's opening statements. In a community on edge, the trial for the three men accused of killing Ahmad Arbery began. A day Arbery's family had prayed for and dreaded. Ladies and gentlemen, you shall well and truly try the issues. Addressing 11 white jurors and one black juror, the assistant district attorney outlining how she will prove three white men chased down and killed 25-year-old Arbery simply because he was black and running in their Georgia neighborhood. That according to the prosecution. In this case, all three of these defendants did everything they did based on assumptions. Not on facts, not on evidence, on assumptions. And they made decisions in their driveways, based on those assumptions that took a young man's life. Travis McMichael, his father Gregory McMichael, and a neighbor, William Roddy Bryan Jr., are facing life in prison on charges of murder. It was Bryan who captured the killing on a cell phone. In their opening statement, prosecutors played the cell phone video. Among those watching and listening in the courtroom was Arbery's mother who said it was the first time she had ever seen the video in its entirety of the moment her son was fatally shot. I decided to, to remain in so I can get familiar with what happened to Ahmad the last minutes of his life. At no time during the five-minute chase, the prosecutors say, did the defendants tell Arbery they were performing a citizen's arrest? Instead, the prosecutors maintain Gregory McMichael shouted threats. So how do you know Mr. Ahmad Arbery was under attack by strangers with intent to kill him. Because Greg McMichael told the police this, stop or I'll blow your head off. In the first of three opening statements for the defense, Travis McMichael's attorney portrays a very different story. This case is about duty and responsibility. Describing Travis McMichael not as a vigilante, but as a 10-year veteran of the Coast Guard who felt a duty and responsibility to protect his neighborhood using his training. It is scenario-based training. You're relying on muscle memory. 
The defense argues Arbery was seen on video on multiple different occasions inside a neighborhood home under construction without permission, including the day that Arbery was killed. The evidence shows overwhelmingly that Travis McMichael honestly and lawfully attempted to detain Ahmad Arbery according to the law and shot and killed him in self-defense. Because there are three defendants, of course, there would be three opening statements that would be coming from the defense teams. With one exception, Kevin Goff, the attorney who represents William Bryan, decided not to give an opening statement, at least not now. He's waiting for the state to present their entire case, and then he says he will make his opening statement. Some consider that a rather risky maneuver. And just before the testimony began today, the judge finally ruled on the issue of a Confederate flag emblem that was on Travis McMichael's pickup truck the day he pursued Ahmad Arbery. The judge says the jury can see it and make their own distinctions based upon it. Jake. Martin Savage, thanks so much. President Biden today touting good economic news as Democrats in Congress begin to move on his agenda. But are they really going to do it? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new clues revealing why law enforcement was so unprepared on January 6th. The rapid police overhaul just before the insurrection. Plus, dozens of states now suing the Biden administration over his sweeping vaccine mandate for businesses and corporations. And leading this hour, some good news for President Biden. It appears that the House might be somewhat moving ahead on his agenda. We'll see. But more importantly, there is also good economic news. U.S. businesses added more than a half million jobs in October. The unemployment rate fell to 4.6%. That's down more than two full percentage points since Biden took office. And revised August and September reports show hundreds of thousands more jobs were added than first reported. So let's start with our chief White House correspondent, Kaylin Collins. Kaylin, there's a lot of craziness going on on Capitol Hill, but there is some good news for the president uh, when it comes to the economy and perhaps with his agenda on Capitol Hill. Yeah, so the question kind of, Jake, is whether or not he's going to get another bit of good news and if if Democrats are actually going to deliver this infrastructure bill to his desk tonight. And that is really what the White House is waiting and watching just as much as the rest of us, essentially, to see what's going to happen on Capitol Hill. Because White House officials did start their day with that jobs report, which, of course, exceeded the expectations of economists. And so you saw President Biden coming out this morning to not only tout those numbers, but also to use them as a reason, he said, essentially a launching point point to pass these bills and not only just to pass them Jake he said he wanted to get them passed right now and that would mean getting that infrastructure bill to his desk if it does pass the house and sending that other bill the larger social safety net expansion package to the Senate so they can start working on it but now we are seeing in the hours since we last heard from President Biden how the timelines are shifting here and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying that they are going to move forward with that vote on infrastructure today of course it remains to be seen whether or not she has the vote so she did hint that she feels that she does, saying that she's seen the secret whip count and she has a pretty good feeling as despite the objections that we are seeing from progressives over this latest plan of action. And so the White House is really waiting to see if they are also going to get the infrastructure bill. And so that, of course, depends really largely also on the president's schedule because, Jake, he was scheduled to leave the White House today for the weekend. Right now, the White House is kind of sitting back and waiting to see what is going to happen before they make any decisions on that. They've caught a lid right now, which means we are not likely to see the president before 6 p.m. as they are waiting to see if he's going to have a bill on his desk tonight or not. 
All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. And I just want to bring you this uh, information from uh, our own Manu Raju, who says that President Biden just called the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, Pramila Jayapal, uh, and she left the meeting of the Congressional Progressive Caucus to take the call. But also, another source tells CNN that after Jayapal asked for a show of hands of those who would not back the infrastructure bill, roughly 20 progressives raised their hands, according to a source, talking to Manu Raju. But let's talk about the economy with our experts, Rana Faruhar. There are lots of good economic numbers. President Biden was happy to rattle them off this morning. Take a listen. Job creation in the first full nine months of my administration is about 5.6 million new jobs, a record. New unemployment claims have fallen every week for the past five weeks. Unemployment has decreased more in this year than since 1950. Weekly pay went up in October. Men and women who work in restaurants, hotels, the entertainment industry have seen their pay go up of 12 percent this year. Rana, do you think we're seeing the start of some sort of economic boom? Well, I think we've been seeing it. You know, not only did we get uh, higher than expected jobs numbers this month, but we're seeing those usual revisions. Every single time we get a new jobs figures, uh, the, the ones before are revised upwards. So at this point, it's looking like the last few months have actually been pretty robust, arguably even faster than previous recoveries over the last uh, decade or so. So, yeah, I mean, all things considered, um, this recovery is looking pretty good. Now it's all about the virus. If we were to see another surge, if we were to see something that couldn't be controlled with vaccines, it would be a different story. But right now, the president has a lot to be happy about. Austin Goolsby, take a look at this. A poll released last Monday found 65% of the American people think the U.S. economy is in poor shape. Only 35% feel it's good. How do you explain this apparent disconnect? Well, it takes a little bit of time. I mean, the, in the beginning of the year, the economy was very strong. The polling numbers were strong. As the Delta variant rose and the economy weakened, you're seeing that reflected in the polling now. I would think if they keep putting up literally 600,000 private sector jobs created in a single month, you put up a few months like that, I, I think you would expect to see the polling numbers would move back into the positive. And Doug Holtzikin, um, despite the good news, uh, Americans are seeing shortages and high prices at grocery stores. Yeah. Gasoline prices are up. Inflation is going on. We're hearing warnings about holiday gift shortages because of the supply chain, chain uh, issues. Do you think this is the new normal or will we ever get back to an old normal? Oh, I think we'll get past the supply shortages eventually. It's not going to be a matter of months. It's going to be uh, uh, quite a while. But, you know, the inflation is the real Achilles heel uh, for this administration. And, uh, you know, we're seeing wages rise rapidly. But for the year, real wages have fallen. Inflation's gone up faster. And for people, uh, you know, typical household, half their budget is food, energy and shelter. And those are the numbers that are going up most rapidly. And so I think for the administration, uh, you look at today's report, there's some really good news in there. I think the best number is the fact that payrolls are growing at a 7% annual rate. That shows there's a lot of demand for labor, and it's generating a lot of income to households. And also, the bad news, the labor force participation rate doesn't move. We've got to get people back into the labor force and back into jobs, or we're not going to solve these problems. Rana, what do you think the effect, if these two bills do actually end up passing, Build Back Better and the bipartisan infrastructure, and I recognize that's a big if, um, but if they were to pass and become law, uh, how do you, what do you think the effect would be on the economy? Because I have heard some people say more money in the economy might actually make inflation worse. 
Well, you know, it, it depends on, on how soon things get done, what gets done. I mean, ultimately, the infrastructure bill, particularly the idea of building, uh, you know, building better ports, building better roads. I mean, think what that could do for some of the, the supply chain uh, delays that we've seen. Um, better training for workers, helping to solve the mismatch between supply and demand in labor right now. Helping child care so that women can get back to the workforce. These are all things that would actually um, not, it, it would be disinflationary. It would be good for the economy. But in the short term, of course, there are going to be inflationary pressures. The question is, do we use this time to make the changes that we need to ensure that we're going to have a robust economy and not have stagflation in the next few years going forward? Austin, I, I know that every White House thinks that their problems are never about policy or candidates. It's always just a comms problem. It's always just communications. But there might <laughs> it's actually... It's the media's fault. Yeah, exactly. But there might actually be some communication <laughs> problems here. For example, very few Americans know uh, how many children were lifted out of uh, poverty by the child tax credit uh, that President Biden and the Democrats passed earlier this year. What do you think Democrats, and specifically President Biden, can do to better tell the story of some of the successes. I realize inflation is going to be a problem for a while and you can't comms your way out of that. But there are some successes here. Yeah, I mean, if you're asking message advice from a guy with a PhD in economics, you're probably making a, <laughs> a big mistake. But I do think that they, they, the more people hear about what is actually in the bills, the content of the bills is actually quite popular. It's only once it gets into the partisan scrum and, and the Republicans hear that it's Joe Biden's plan that they say they hate it. And, and that dynamic, you know, has been playing out for, for some years. I think in this, it, it's all about, as we just said, what's going to end up being in it? What will Joe Manchin think? What will Senator Sinema think? Um, and w- will it be paid for? If it is paid for and if it's spread out over some number of years, which it looks like it's going to be, I don't anticipate that in the short run these supply constraints are really going to be the issue. I think there, if we get control of this virus, which hopefully we are, and we got some great news uh, today on the medical front, I think you'll see a big shift back to people spending money on services, which is what they always used to spend their money on. And as that happens, it's going to ease some of the constraints on the supply chain and may, may ease inflation. Doug, do you agree with that? As we're making progress as a nation on combating COVID, do you see the pandemic's hit on the economy uh, ending hopefully soon as well? Uh, I agree with Austin that the, the outlook for the coronavirus is everything for the outlook for the economy. There's no question about it. And we are making progress in not just vaccines, which everyone sort of always appeals to as a silver bullet, but we're also getting these therapeutics so that the the impact on a person with, if they do contract COVID-19 is less severe. And as we do that, the threat of the virus to undertaking normal economic activity becomes smaller. That's, that's exactly what we need from a public health point of view globally. I mean, all of these supply chain problems are in the end labor shortages somewhere on the globe. And so getting that job done is still the number one thing for, for everyone. I, I think I just disagree politely with um, uh, the other two on, on the, the Build Back Better agenda, which I think uh, really is not uh, uh, developing into a, a bill that the American people should support. Um, as, it's de- as it's sort of evolved, it has steadily become programs that are front-loaded so that they don't cost as much. That means all the spending's up front and the pay-fors are spread out over 10 years. That's more and more like a stimulus bill, which is not what the economy needs right now. The infrastructure uh, bill, it's fine. That's not a threat from an inflation point of view. It's not particularly dramatic either. I mean, it's, it's going to do 
a modestly positive impact over the next five or seven years. But, but the Build Back Better, um, it, it's full of poorly drafted provisions that are front-loaded, and that's not a good idea. All right, thanks one and all. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. We're following the big news on Capitol Hill this evening. Speaker Nancy Pelosi minutes ago says Democrats will vote on some of Biden's agenda tonight. We're told that at least 20 or so progressives might not go along with this plan. Will they actually follow through? Plus, Green Bay Packers QB Aaron Rodgers now passing blame for all his unvaccinated COVID drama. Stay with us. We are back with some wacky breaking news. House Democratic leaders saying just moments ago they are planning for two votes tonight. One on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that has already passed the Senate. Then a second procedural vote on the rules for Biden's Build Back Better plan, the larger expansive social safety net bill. CNN is learning that there might be enough progressive Democrats against this move to sink the infrastructure bill completely. Let's go to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu just... To bring our viewers up to speed, the progressives want the Build Back Better Act, and they're holding infrastructure hostage. The moderates want infrastructure. They're holding Build Back Better hostage. You've got some new reporting about President Biden trying to get progressives on board with the plan. What is it? Yeah, that's right. President Biden was on the phone this afternoon with Pramila Jayapal, who is the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He, she left this meeting that she was having with her caucus members to discuss their strategy. And she came out, didn't want to comment, but I'm told that by multiple sources that she did have a call with the president. Now, I'm also told in that meeting, she took a show of hands. She asked who is ready to vote against the infrastructure bill. Roughly 20 progressives said they would do so because they are demanding, as they have for months, that this bill move alongside the larger Build Back Better plan to expand the social safety net and pump hundreds of billions of dollars into efforts to fight climate change. But that larger bill has also been held hostage among a handful of moderate Democrats who want a full accounting by the Congressional Budget Office to understand its budgetary impacts. But that analysis is going to take a couple of weeks. So the progressives are saying, OK, if that's going to take a couple of weeks, let's wait a couple of weeks to vote on the infrastructure plan. And they are suggesting that despite Nancy Pelosi's gamble to move ahead with the infrastructure vote, they will vote no. This is what Jared Huffman, a congressman, told me earlier today. I am disappointed. I uh, don't have constructive words to describe my level of dismay that we would do this drill again. If the BIF comes to us as a standalone vote separated from the Build Back Better Act, I'm, I'm a hard no. So Nancy Pelosi is indicating that she is not concerned about these warnings from her left, saying saying that she is still going to put this bill on the floor. This is a rare gamble by the speaker. We'll see if she ultimately carries through with it. But, Jake, she typically does not go to the floor when she does not have the votes. And the progressives are indicating that if they have at least 20, that's likely enough votes to scuttle this bill. We don't expect enough Republicans to offset those losses from de- Democratic votes. So we'll see how this ultimately plays out, Jake. But it's been a day of disarray for Democrats. If they've tried to keep their caucus together, tried to get both bills through they're the House, but it's possible neither will pass and they may go to recess with nothing. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thank you so much. I want to bring in uh, the panel. Um, and look, generally, Dems in disarray is considered a, a <laughs> d- Democrat. Well, Democrat, Democrats often make fun of the media for saying Democrats in disarray. But I think it's I think it's fair. I think we can I think we can bring it out of the cliche, the discarded cliche bin and say this is disarray. Do you think Speaker Pelosi actually knows that she has the votes, as she almost always does, or is she gambling? 
I have seen Speaker Pelosi count votes before. So I think this is probably, uh, you can rest assured, she thinks she has the votes. The question is, are they there? And there's, remember this, there's what people say they want in public, and it's what they really want. And so what they really want is said in quiet conversation one-on-one. And she said today, I've got my private speaker count, and I don't tell anybody, not even my friends, who's in that number. And what do you think, Manu? I mean, I'm sorry, Ramesh. What do you think? Manu just reported he had a, he had a clip from Jared Huffman, congressman, who said, I'm a no. That's not just what a he's... A hard no. A hard no. Yeah. Right. On camera, on CNN. Now, look, it has happened before. People say <laughs> that they are no, and then they end up voting yes. That happens. I mean, so Speaker Pelosi could say... You're really going to sink Joe Biden's presidency. But what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I I think one reason why some of those progressives might end up voting no is because this isn't the end of the process anyway. Even if the moderates and the progressives in the Democratic Party, maybe joined by a couple Republicans, get together and come up with a solution, they don't have a Build Back Better bill that has Manchin sign-off in the Senate yet. So there's a certain kind of we're spinning our (laughs) wheels thing going on here. Yeah is impeding a solution. Yeah, but real quickly, they don't need the Senate, right? What they believe is, my understanding, let's pass what the House wants. Let's get it over to the Senate. And the Senate wants to strip stuff out. Let the Senate strip it out. And then we'll vote on whatever the, the next thing is. But they don't have to do the Senate's dirty work for them. I think you're kidding on, a, I was to say, a key point. What I've been hearing is things like paid family leave. We're going to put it in there and then force the Senate into a position where they have to strip it out. And then they have to explain why they stripped it out of the bill. Now, is that what's likely to happen? Are we likely to see those sorts of items in the final bill? No, but that is the strategy in the play here. But do you see this disarray? Again, I'm going to say it. Uh, this, or fine, dysfunction. Yeah. Do you see it as having played any role in what happened Tuesday, the shellacking the Democrats got from coast to coast in a lot of elections? Sure. I mean, it would have been better if they hadn't spent the last uh, months wrangling over this bill. It would have been uh, much better uh, if they had delivered something. So if you're the Democrats who are running, you could go around and you could say, listen, this is what uh, Joe Biden has done. This is what the Democratic Party uh, is all about. I also just think there is an anti-incumbent wave Mm -hmm. uh, and Democrats got swept away by it. And I think in 2022, uh, if you think about historically what happens to the president's party, uh, there'll likely be uh, a continuation of that wave. There was some good news for this president uh, this week. Uh, I think this idea that there could be a pill to uh, battle COVID, I think the rollout of vaccines for children, that's good news for this sure. president. Sure, and there's great, good uh, economic and, and news good today. Economic good jobs news. report, also, and they revised the last two bad jobs exactly. report to make so them good that again. That is some good news, and maybe by the time we get to 2022, there is a better climate. People feel better about the direction of the country. I also feel like... These bills, I don't even really know how much they're going to help Democrats yeah. in 2022. You agree if you with think that? about, yeah, it just it does. It, it I doesn't work that. I way. think the the disarray, to use yeah. your your new favorite word, creates both an inside and an outside problem. The inside problem for Democrats is one of the ways you get your followers to take votes they may not be enthusiastic about is by giving them the impression. We know what we're doing is leadership. We've got a plan. And I think that has gotten that has been eroded and eroded and eroded and now is not there. The outside problem is what is the message here? Yeah. We heard Congressman Huffman talking about Biff. Not one in a hundred Americans <laughs> knows what this It's the bipartisan <laughs> infrastructure <laughs> bill. This, yeah. debate, so you know. this debate has now gone on so long that everybody's referring in legislative shorthand and completely is out of connection with the public. Yeah, and it's not clear that the final bills are actually going 
going to matter to people, that they're going to feel them in their everyday They will, though. I mean, that's absolutely. the truth. We'll see. The, we'll whether whether yeah. it's tax hikes that yeah. they don't like for wealthy people right. or broadband constructed in, in their yards for, for But will they connect America? them or universal to pre-K. Biden? <laughs> I mean, we'll, well, see. That's, well, that yeah. would be the next step in the White House signaling today that they would need to do a robust outreach and to promote these. One of the concerns that Democrats had in 2009 was that there wasn't enough promotion done of that. And then you got to that midterm schlacking. So I've been told by Democrats that they've learned that lesson and that they will be hitting the road aggressively, well, putting yeah. cabinet secretaries out there and others. Because, as we've seen in polling, people don't know what's in this But bill. it's also true. If you have to explain it, it hasn't been done, right? <laughs> I want to touch on a point that you two uh, made, Ramesh and Niamalika, the idea that it doesn't really necessarily matter all that yeah. much whether these bills pass as to whether or not uh, Democrats get reelected, yeah. uh, the ones that are the frontline Democrats. So what do you think will it be? It will be the economy. It will be gas COVID, prices, COVID, gas prices, grocery inflation. prices. Yeah, but look, even a good economy and good trends on COVID, those are things that will limit the losses of the right. party in power, they're not, I think, going to make it a good midterm for the Democrats. Here's where it matters. It matters when the president's poll numbers are up or the <laughs> president's poll numbers are down. And if people think Joe Biden is winning, then they're going to want to be on the winning team. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> right? So they got to move that ball forward. And I'm struck today by the images that we saw from Colin Powell's funeral with all those people sitting there. And I was thinking, you know, that whole scene, those are all the people, the January 6th rioters and the Trump people are all against. They want to get rid of everybody who was in power inside of that the cathedral today because those are the people who they view as the establishment who are in the way. But those rioters, those Trump people that think the Democrats are going to be running against are people who see America as a brittle place, a brittle place that can't talk about its past or think about its future. And I think the Democrats are going to have to run on something that's more inclusive about a strong America that's big enough for all of us. And I think that values conversation is the one that Democrats have to get and into. And Francesca, I just want, people might be watching what's going on right now and think, okay, this is annoying and it's dysfunctional, but it's not that unusual. It's actually fairly unusual the House gaveled in at 8.12 this morning, and the Democrats has now set a record for the longest period of time that it was open for a vote <laughs> for that one vote. The previous record was two hours and 51 minutes. We're now obviously well past nine hours. I mean, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! But, like, this is unusual. And meanwhile, you have the president of the United States who was supposed to be leaving for Rehoboth Beach this evening. Lovely and he's place, still, by the way. <laughs> he's, And he's still at the White House. We don't know uh, when we could hear from him. He suggested earlier today that if a vote takes place uh, that we could hear from him, and he didn't say when. So... Unclear if that's tonight or when that would be tomorrow yeah. either. And so. this is Biden who promised competency, who came in saying that he could bring both sides together and he was a great deal maker, having so much problems, so many problems with his own party, let alone bringing Republicans along, uh, bridging the two divides, sort of the progressives and the moderates. He can't seem to do that. Could- and the upcoming midterms make the problem worse for the Democrats because on the moderate side, it's going to be if we vote for this we're going to be even that much more likely to lose our si- our seats. On the progressive side is we're going to lose everything. This is our last chance to get all the initiatives that we want. Yeah. And this is Biden's last chance to get anything done, right? Yeah. And, you know, most presidents, you're able to get one big initiative. You had with, with uh, Trump his tax cuts and Obama, Obamacare, which again did not help him in the midterms. If anybody can remember that. Uh, so this it's is still around, is, though. It is yeah. still around. It is still around. But it, still... It, it didn't help with any of the midterms. Keep in mind, the progressives also really, a lot of Democrats on the Hill and around the town, around the country, believe we're going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> the Democrats are going to lose exactly right. next year. Yeah. 
right? So they want to get everything they possibly yeah. can oh, now, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. You're saying they're going to lose uh, because they may not get another chance at this uh, after 2022. But they right. always I mean, thought that. Oh, they always thought that, and that's actually why they felt that instead of doing the bipartisan deal in the first place, they should have moved on this particular bill, reconciliation, way earlier in the summer, and they would have had a much better chance of getting it done before the end of the year. My thanks to the panel. A sweeping vaccine mandate that covers tens of millions of Americans, but more than half of the governors of U.S. states are now suing to stop it. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, not in my house. That's the message from 26 states to President Biden, who are now suing after the Biden administration announced a deadline for the most aggressive vaccine mandate of the pandemic so far. The mandate applies to any private businesses with 100 or more employees. As CNN's Athena Jones reports, the White House says it is confident the new rule will hold up in court. It's been my belief that mandates only further divide and politicize our state and our country. We don't need an outrageous, overreaching mandate to get us to do the right thing. Growing backlash to new federal vaccine requirements, setting up a legal showdown. The Biden mandates will be challenged in courts. Under the new rule announced yesterday by the Biden administration, workers at private businesses with 100 or more employees must be vaccinated by January 4th or produce a negative COVID test weekly and wear a mask. The rule is expected to impact some 84 million employees, with employers facing fines of up to $14,000 per violation, even higher for willful violations. This is a rule that is not consistent with the Constitution and is not legally authorized through congressional statutes. Now more than two dozen states are challenging the new rules in court. I just think people are so sick of constantly being bossed around, restricted, mandated, all these different things. Uh, We've had enough of it and we want people to be able to make their own decisions. Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis has railed against COVID-related mandates for months, joining a suit with Georgia and with Alabama, whose governor signed legislation today that allows state residents to claim a medical or religious exemption from a COVID vaccine requirement. Some prominent U.S. trade groups also taking issue with the rule. The National Retail Federation, the world's largest retail trade association, calling it burdensome for retailers during the crucial holiday shopping season. The Associated Builders and Contractors, a construction industry trade group, warning the rule is likely to exacerbate existing issues, including increasing costs, supply chain bottlenecks, and a worker shortage. Still, the White House says vaccine requirements are working, helping bring the number of those unvaccinated who are eligible in the U.S. down to about 60 million, slowing COVID spread and giving the economy a boost. Vaccinated workers are going back to work. Vaccinated shoppers are going back to stores. And they believe they're on firm legal footing. We're pretty confident. Uh, The administration clearly has the authority uh, to protect workers and actions announced by the president are designed to save lives and stop spread of COVID. Now, when it comes to enforcing this rule for large private businesses, an official telling CNN the agency making sure businesses comply will have planned inspections of some workplaces and will also rely on complaints from workers to enforce the rule. Jake. All right. Athena Jones, thank you so much. Coming up next to CNN exclusive. Why was there so much confusion among Capitol Police on January 6th? What CNN is learning happened to the intelligence unit just before the insurrection. Stay with us. 
In our sports lead today, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers now admitting he has not been vaccinated against coronavirus after contracting the virus earlier this week. But instead of admitting that he had misled the public to believe he had been vaccinated, Rodgers is now blaming the, quote, woke mob for how he's being treated, perhaps creating a new definition for the term cheesehead. I realize I'm in the crosshairs of the woke mob right now. So before my final nail gets put in my cancel culture uh, casket, I think I'd like to set the record straight on so many of the uh, blatant lies that are out there about myself right now. I'm not, uh, you know, some sort of anti-vax flat earther. Um, I am somebody who's a critical thinker. Uh, You guys know me. I march to the beat of my own drum. And of course, of course, Rogers invoked Martin Luther King Jr. saying the great MLK said that you have a moral obligation to object to unjust rules and rules that make no sense. Here to discuss this all, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Christine, what do you make of Rogers' reaction to all this? I mean, he was the one who led everyone to believe he had been vaccinated. And now he says he's being targeted by a woke mob, which I'm not sure he even knows what woke means, if that's what he's talking about. Exactly, Jake. I mean, this is a huge unforced error by a man who has transcended football and wants to have a career, a, a long lifetime in whether it's hosting Jeopardy or in, in other parts of our culture. What a shock. What a surprise that this is the guy we thought was so smart and well-read and turns out that he doesn't even have the courage or the guts to say that he wasn't vaccinated, probably because he was fearful of that woke mob. And uh, even now, given a chance to explain away his errors, He did not do it. Consider that he did not wear a mask day after day when he would meet with the media uh, at the uh, Packers facility or after games like he was supposed to because he was unvaccinated, but he was trying to have the charade that he was vaccinated, apparently. Think of all the people that were potentially exposed to whatever he might have had. Uh, Maybe go home to a husband or wife and that's, you know, they might have uh, immune issues. So my goodness, what a horrible mistake by him. I think we're seeing a very different side of Aaron Rodgers, and I think we're seeing a side of Aaron Rodgers that people are really, really disgusted by. He's talking about uh, facing cancellation. He's not facing cancellation. I mean, talk to Colin Kaepernick about facing cancellation, but is there any kind of discipline that that he might face for, for being so misleading? Yes, he could be fined by the National Football League, but it's a little slap on the wrist. He could also be suspended Uh, The odds are that it will be more the Packers that are looked at and get some kind of a fine. My guess is it'll be a fine, Jake, because uh, the bottom line is the NFL wants Aaron Rodgers back on the field. The question, I think, moving forward is what does the rest of America think? And, you know, again, as I said, he was on Jeopardy. That's a double and triple vaxxed audience there. And so what he has done, I think, is irreparable damage to the kinds of things he was hoping to be, that crossover star, much different than your average old football player. Uh, But yes, he could face some punishment. I think the punishment will be much greater over his lifetime, potentially in endorsements. We'll see how it plays out, but I'm sure that a lot of people who are vaccinated and concerned about these issues are looking at him and saying, what in the world are you doing, pal? We thought you were smarter than this. And and look, when you're a public figure, there's a certain obligation you have uh, to the public in terms of, you know, sharing information that's accurate, not just about yourself, but in general. He spread information in that very interview. He claimed he would have better protection uh, against COVID uh, than from a vaccine. Uh, the CDC says that's not true. He's saying because he because he had COVID that the, the antibodies... It, I mean, that has the potential to have a massive impact on on his fans. I mean, 
I might not be a fan of the Green Bay Packers, but there are millions of them. Well, there are. And think of the Packers fan who today has been on the fence, maybe, trying to be convinced by his or her, you know, grandchildren to get the vaccine. And now they listen to their hero, Aaron Rodgers, and they decide not to as we head into this season of cold weather and being indoors. I mean, it is a devastating prospect, uh, the ramifications of what this guy is doing and what he's saying. He sounds like a crackpot. I mean, not listening to science, says he's smart, says he gets it, and then saying these things. He has a responsibility as a role model to the millions of Packer fans out there and everyone else who looks up to him who might be taking their lead from him, Jake. And now he's saying these things. Uh, it's, it's really, again, a surprise, a disappointment, a stunning twist in the life of a guy we thought we knew at 37, who's lived this kind of interesting, intriguing life that we kind of are interested, where is he going to go next? We never saw this one coming. Yeah, it's a real disappointment. Christine Brennan, thanks so much. Peloton screeching to a halt as Americans get back to the world and leave their spin bikes behind. That's ahead. Internationally, the arraignment of former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat, has been postponed. A criminal complaint was filed against Cuomo in October, alleging that he forcibly touched a woman. Cuomo, as you may recall, resigned in August after multiple women had accused him of sexual harassment or worse. CNN's MJ Lee joins me now live. So, MJ, is this good news for the former governor? What's going on? Jake, there are just so many questions right now. So here's what we know uh, tonight. Uh, Andrew Cuomo's arraignment on the count of forcible touching, as you said, has now effectively been postponed. Uh, The Albany DA saying that the filings that were made by the Albany Sheriff's Office uh, were potentially defective. Uh, This comes in a new letter that he has released in which he says that the Albany Sheriff's filing was unilaterally and inexplicably filed and that one big problem is that it did not include a sworn statement uh, from the victim. Now, the arraignment has now been moved to January uh, 7th of 2022. uh, And whether to proceed with criminal charges, that is going to be now a question entirely for the DA to make. And now, uh, essentially, what has happened is that uh, he has more time to complete his own investigation uh, into the matter uh, before ultimately deciding whether to move forward with these charges. Uh, This certainly just raises a lot of questions again uh, as to why the sheriff's office decided to move forward with the charges in the first place uh, without consulting with the DA's office. Uh, Just remember, uh, Jake, last week when this news came out, uh, it was very unusual. And we noted that at the time that there seemed to be no coordination. Uh, Remember, the DA's office said uh, they were surprised to see the charges, certainly indicating that they didn't know they were coming. And so now uh, this new letter from the DA's office raises even more questions about what is going to happen with this case, Jake. All right, MJ. Ellie, thank you so much for that update. Let's bring in former federal prosecutor uh, Ellie Honig. Ellie, what does this tell you uh, about the district attorney's strategy, if anything? Two things, Jake. First of all, the DA is trying to buy more time. We did have that looming court date of November 17th on which the former governor would have been arraigned, handcuffed, mugshot, etc. The DA has now asked for an extension. So the DA has more time because remember, Ultimately, the call about whether to proceed with these charges, it's not up to the sheriff, it's up to the DA. The second thing that I think we're seeing is the DA is planting a seed of doubt here. The DA's letter says that these charges, as filed by the sheriff, are potentially defective. That's a very strong thing for a prosecutor to say, and it tells us that the DA could well have a problem with these charges and may not want to proceed with them. What does it say about the sheriff's role in all this? 
Well, it's sort of the DA calling out the sheriff, because remember, the sheriff went without the DA, went to a judge, got these charges issued. That's an unusual move to make in a high profile case like this, where there's no time pressure. So ultimately, the sheriff is not the one who gets to decide here. The DA does. And I think we're seeing the starts of a signs of some sort of rift between the sheriff and the DA. They may see this case differently. All right, Ellie Honig with the latest on the Andrew Cuomo matter. We'll be right back after this. January 6th was the most visible and the most violent part of Trump's attempt to undermine the election last year and hold on to power despite the fact that he lost. But it was far from the only part of his campaign to do so. Tonight in a CNN special report, Trumping Democracy and American Coup, my team and I attempt to examine how close Trump and his team came to actually ending American democracy I talked to state and local election officials, folks from the Trump White House, Republican lawmakers from all over the United States who watched in horror as leaders from their own party, led by Trump, kept pushing the big lie and pressuring states to disenfranchise American voters, including just hours after Congress came under physical attack as MAGA terrorists took the Capitol. after the last rioters had been pushed out of the Capitol, while there was still glass on the floors and blood on the stairs, Congress tried to get back to the business of democracy. Let's get back to work. They had a presidential election to certify. When we reconvened that night, there was an opportunity for leadership from Kevin McCarthy, an opportunity for him to stand up and say, it's time for us to recognize that the election is over, it's over, and and we need to come together and heal. I rise to address what happened in this chamber today. As I sat on the floor and listened to his remarks, they began like that, but then it became clear he was urging continued objection to the electoral votes, which I can't understand. We're hearing valid concerns about election integrity. By the end of the night, two-thirds of Republicans in the House of Representatives, including the current Republican leadership, voted not to certify the state of Arizona. I object to the electoral votes. And not to certify the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Do you think Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise and Elise Stefanik, all of whom voted to not count electors after blood had been shed after this attack, do you think they actually believe this cause that they've taken up? Not a word of it. I don't think they believe any of it. But I think you can convince yourself, if you're determined to, that I'll just play the game a little longer so that I'll be here to lead to a new direction. Or I'll play the game because I don't have the power and influence to change the ship. You know, when you think about the the heroics on Flight 93 on 9-11, You know, all those passengers standing up, rushing the cockpit and saving the Capitol. Had Todd Beamer or any of those others alone charged the cockpit, we would have probably a rebuilt Capitol today and a lot of casualties. But they all decided to do it together. And when you only have a few people speaking out, it's no doubt that that's not going to turn the ship. Everybody has to, particularly the leaders of the party. You can join me for much, much more in the CNN special report, Trumping Democracy and American Coup, tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. 
Finally, from us today, please check out the Homes for Our Troops' fifth annual Veterans Day celebrity auction. We have a lot of great items up for auction on eBay, including Friends shirts from Jennifer Aniston's personal collection that she autographed, a John Bon Jovi autographed Fender guitar. You can buy a Zoom call with Paul Rudd and also me. Gwyneth Paltrow will name an item of her new clothing line after the winning bidder. Plenty of other incredible offers from Don Cheadle and Mindy Kaling and George Clooney, Will Ferrell, so many more. All proceeds go to build specially designed homes for the most severely wounded veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan and their families. You can find all the items at ebay.com slash H-F-O-T, Homes for Our Troops, H-F-O-T, bidding closes November 14th. Be sure to tune in to State of the Union Sunday. Among the guests, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, mayor-elect, Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. That's at 9 and noon Eastern. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.